first off, good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. It's really great to have you here. Uh, my name is Mark Edwards. Uh, I'm one of the overseers here uh, uh, this summer. Our lead pastor, Chris Wachter, is on a sabbatical, so he's on an extended Sabbath, um, hence the sabbatical, and uh, he's getting a chance to, to rest a bit, to study a bit, um, to vision cast, those kind of things. So we're really excited that he's able to do that. In the meantime, you're going to hear a whole lot of Pastor Spencer and, uh, and from some of us as the overseers. So it's exciting to be up here. Uh, I need, I believe I need this guy. Boom. Here we go. All right. So a little bit about me. Uh, this is my family. This is uh, Heidi, uh, Adeline, and Ilya. Um, I come from a family of all women, in, including the cat, who is not allowed to be in the museum here, but you have to trust me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so a really great family, uh, very blessed in that way. Uh, we live in South Minneapolis. We've been coming to Hiawatha Church for about eight years or so. Uh, we've been huge, hugely blessed to be part of this community. Uh, we've been able to uh, serve in, in various ministries, community group, uh, those kind of things. And, uh, and take part in all of the HLI classes, or many of them. Really awesome. I'd highly recommend um, getting into those yourself. Um, during the day, during the week, normally, uh, I am a leader at Media Minefield, which is a media company in the PR space. Uh, super great company, uh, and I've been there about seven years, too. So I'm going to let you in a little... Uh, so sometimes I'm up here singing. I'm going to let you into a little secret. So when I'm driving here... When I'm singing, usually I warm up, right? I do vocal warm-ups like I was taught in choir, and I do good breathing exercises, that kind of thing. I didn't know how to warm up for this, so I just cranked Striper and sang at the top of my lungs, so um, I felt like a good at the time. All right, so let's dive in here. Today's passage is from Acts 15, and we'll start. It's a pretty long passage. It's 35 verses, so we're going to break it into two sections, uh, and let's get going here. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way uh, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell quiet, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so there's, uh, there's a lot there. Um, let's uh, start to break it down a bit. So first thing here is the gospel is spreading, right? Um, and before we kind of dive into everything, 
what's going on. I thought this was a good uh, line in the sand piece uh, passage here where something major is happening. There's a threat on the church. And uh, so I, I just want to spend a few minutes, uh, the Spark Notes version, of going back into uh, Acts and just seeing what's happened here so far. So first off, the gospel is spreading. What do I mean by the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ saves us, and we are adopted into the family of God, right? And this is good news because it's done for us. So this is the good news of the gospel. If you remember back, Jesus uh, said uh, uh, what would happen here in Acts 1.8. He says, first it's going to go to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, first in Jerusalem, and then beyond. And so early in the Acts series, in verse 2, the uh, Holy Spirit comes, fills the people. Immediately, thousands are baptized and believe. It's an, a really amazing, uh, an amazing thing. And uh, the ministry continues, the gospel continues, but the gospel by its very nature divides, right? So for those who know that they're sinful, they humbly submit to this idea that they can't do it, that they need a Savior, uh, the gospel's great news, right? Uh, but for those who think they bring something to the table... Not so good. They don't like this, um, and it's troubling. So we see both here in the first few chapters of Acts. Uh, we see amazing news of redemption and growth, and then we see uh, divisive and uh, dissension uh, happening here too. And one of the accounts that we see Acts, uh, in Acts is uh, Stephen, an early figure. He's an early deacon of the church. Uh, he refuses to move off this gospel idea, and he's stoned. And he's stoned and killed at the feet of of Saul, a young man named Saul, who's known for hunting down and killing and imprisoning believers, right? Many of us here know this story, uh, um, but for those Wes Anderson fans out there, actually, uh, Acts 1-8, Jesus is saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. Acts 8-1, I'm looking at you two because I know. Uh, <laughs> Acts 8-1, look what happens. It's all, it, all, it starts to happen. So 1-8-8-1, numbers people, you know, you might like that. Uh, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And we see here in 8.1 that Saul approves of his execution. So Saul, you know, at that time, was the enemy of the church, right? Um, but Jesus disrupts his story. And i got to do the real brief version here, but I would highly recommend going back, listening to the podcast, it dives into uh, much deeper detail. But basically, Jesus interrupts that story. He, he blinds him periodically. He, he says, you're going to uh, be on mission for me. You're going to be my instrument. Uh, and that's exactly what uh, starts to play out. He's, he starts to work for uh, the cause of the gospel. So the big piece really here, I say all this, is to grab onto that the gospel is spreading among the Gentiles. They're now God-fearing Gentiles uh, who are starting to believe in this historically Jewish uh, idea, and this causes attention, right? So we've got these uh, Jews who are saying, they're not like us. They're not doing things the way that they're supposed to do. They're doing these things. They're, they're dirty. They're, they're different people. There's all these different things that they didn't like about it. So real quick here on the Council of Jerusalem, too. Just look at the list. Uh, this is early church leaders. Uh, this is a, a major list of early players. We've got Peter, we've got Paul, we've got Barnabas, James, Silas, other Judas. Uh, they're all there, and it was deemed important, right? Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. They were there because in Antioch, 
uh, about 300 miles north, uh, here we go, made a little map, it's kind of hard to see, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, uh, in Antioch there were some people saying, you've got to follow these laws, you've got to circumcise, you've got to follow the law of Moses, and they were adamant, they were saying, no, this is not the way that it should be. And, you know, I wanted to stop, just think about this a little bit in that, think of the um, cost of this. So in business, we talk about opportunity costs a lot. So, if, you know, if you have a certain number of resources, you have limited resources, where you spend those resources can have an effect down the line because if you're doing low margin work, for instance, and some high margin work comes through and then you don't actually have the resources to do it, you have an opportunity cost, right? So in this case, there's an opportunity cost for Paul and Barnabas to travel a 10-plus day journey by uh, foot from Antioch to Jerusalem. And um, that piece is just important to think about in the sense of an argument could be made that they should just keep doing what they're doing, right? Even in this passage, and we see other places in Acts, we see uh, amazing stories of Gentiles uh, converting and believing, and, and amazing things are happening, right? So they're church planting, they're on mission. They're doing the things that they should be doing, right? There's a good argument to be made for that. Um, but no, they, they say, we've got to get down there uh, to Jerusalem. We've got to meet up with the other church leaders. We've got to make sure we get this right, right? And uh, they need to protect the gospel at all costs. And, and this is a great example of leadership, of church leadership, protecting the people and preserving the gospel, right? And that's a huge thing for us at Hiawatha Church, we, we want to protect the people, we want to preserve the gospel, and we're going to fight for that. So what do we see actually happening here? Um, we see an elevating of the law, right? So I have verses 1 and 5 up here. So verse 1 happened in Antioch, and verse 5 happened in Jerusalem, but basically the same thing. Uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, right? Or uh, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Um, it starts, you know, basically what they're doing here is elevating the law to a place of salvation. Um, but in verse 5 here, they double down, right? They say circumcision is important, but also order them to keep the whole law of Moses. And this is important too. And, and Paul addresses this actually in a different book, Galatians 2, 4 to 5. He's speaking of this exact event. Uh, if you go over to Galatians, Paul talks about this trip to Jerusalem. He says, he goes up to Jerusalem and makes a claim for the gospel he is preaching. Which, by the way, I, when I was reading this, um, Paul, he, they say a lot of going up to Jerusalem uh, and so I can only imagine this is like the James Brown, like, get on up to Jerusalem or something, because uh, the map, clearly it's down, right? So some, something's going on there. But, but uh, he goes up to Jerusalem, he makes a claim for the gospel he's preaching. Again, why does he spend his time this way? And why is he so passionate about it, right? Well, Paul knows what he's talking about. He used to be one of them. Elsewhere in Scripture, he says, I, I was like the best at this. I could keep the law. I could really do this stuff really well, and it's garbage. So he's bad, he passionately disagrees with them because he's fighting for uh, anyone who saves him, or for the one who saves him. He knows the freedom found in Christ and the slippery slope of adding in anything of what uh, they bring to the table, right? He's fighting for him 
who saved him. The law is important in, in what it does and what it shows us, but it's not a saving thing. And that's what they're doing. They're elevating uh, this to a place of being necessary to save us. This group wanted these new God-fearing Gentiles to play by the old rules, right? Um, keep in mind, some of these Jewish believers were Messianic Jews as well, so that meaning that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they, they accepted that peace, but was that enough? Clearly not here. And again, this is not about the circumcision simply. It's about keeping the whole law of Moses. They make this clear. They say, you've got to do all of these things. And uh, basically what they're doing is they're adding into the equation, right? The equation is wrong. There's, there's belief, and then there's adding in the law of Moses, and then that equals salvation. They're complicating that equation. And really the major issue with that, of course, is it's telling the story of we find our way to God, not vice versa. They're preaching an anti-gospel there, right? So the problem's in our heart. It's part, I'm part of the solution. Look at what I'm doing, and it's good. Uh, Martin Luther, um, one of the reformers, says religion is the default mode of the human heart. Uh, and what does he mean by this, right? Our hearts are inclined to try to show we are worthy. We want to add to the equation. We want to believe. We want to bring something to the table. This is who we are. We want to show our worth. We see this play out often. Um, or we want to do good uh, for others so God will accept us, right? And the, the issue here is that sometimes we anchor our identity in this. Uh, I think it's as the default mode of the heart, uh, we're going to have moments of this, but what do we come back to? And, and if we anchor our identity here, uh, that's where we get into trouble. And elevating the law leads to a misplaced trust. And how often do we misplace our trust, put uh, our trust in the wrong things? We falsely put our trust in ourselves and others. Um, so I was a child of the 80s. Um, I liked sports. Uh, and back then, there was this guy right here. It was kind of a big deal. Looks pretty sweet, doesn't he? <laughs> yep, this is Andre Agassi, uh, you know, young Mark Edwards was like, dude, get it together. You've got to look as cool as this guy. Uh, so then I was like, I've got to buy myself some acid wash shorts. Yep, no problem. Grow a sweet mullet. That was not a problem either. Uh, tennis skills, more of a problem. But, uh, but we lived in a red brick house, okay? So uh, on one side of the red brick house was a flat, kind of flat, good tennis, uh, good tennis land, but there were two windows. They led to the living room and my brother's bedroom. On the other side of the house was a hill, not as great a tennis, but only one window uh, that led to the garage. So the um, problem was my dad, under the law of Donald, that's, that's my dad's name, uh, he, he said, no tennis against the house. This is a bad idea. It's not going to end well. Maybe he saw my tennis skills more clearly than I did. Uh, but so, of course, he goes to work and being the kind of kid who really needs the gospel like I am, uh, I was like, I'm going to try this. You know, he's at work. So I played, and guess what happened? Nothing really happened. I played, uh, you know, I beat whoever, John McEnroe that day as Andre Agassi, and then, uh, and then I you know, went and did other things or whatever. Well, this went on for probably weeks. I mean, I remember often, I remember playing out there, and I played on the flat side for a while, and I bounced it off the windows a couple times. I was like, this is, I got to go to the other side. So I started playing on the hill. Well, you can probably guess what happened one time. Boom, smash a great uh, forehand right through the window, game over, my dad's going to come home. I didn't even have to tell him it was me. He knew, you know. Uh, 
and that was it. So, uh, but why do I tell you all that? Um, you know, I had, the, I had faith in my ability to not mess this up. I had faith in, uh, in my tennis ability, which was a huge mistake. Uh, but uh, my trust was in myself when it clearly should not have been. Um, actually, uh, as a, an aside, we got the window fixed, and I'm, I'm not even kidding, the day we got the window fixed, I broke it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for all of you parents of, you know, uh, yeah, whatever. It was not good. <laughs> yep. But anyway, how is that different from uh, what we put ourselves, when we put ourselves into the equation of our salvation? It's not that different. We end up putting our faith into the what, not the who. When we put our faith into what, we add ourselves back into the equations, right? Uh, Verse 5 here, uh, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses, right? This is what this group of Pharisees is saying, and this is what we need to guard against in our hearts. Like Martin Luther suggests, if we default to this, this is what we can do, what we feel we can add. There's no real surprise here then that the Pharisees are saying this, right? You need to require these people to be as good as we are. They need to follow the laws like we do. Uh, They need to do the rituals like we do. Uh, Men need to be circumcised like we are. Um, And for us, so the what can be any number of things, right? Uh, We often rely, we put our faith in, we trust in our family, right? Until we can't. Or our jobs, until we can't. Our bank accounts, until we can't. Our health, until we can't. Other people, until we can't. We put our faith in ourselves until we can't. Uh, when we do this, and I do this all the time, we're doing the same thing as the Pharisees in today's passage. We're relying on ourselves to gain our way to God. We're not trusting in a trustworthy God. We're trusting in ourselves, which ultimately leads uh, to destruction. So when I need a trusted source out there on the internet, uh, I go to where I suspect most of you go to. I go to Wikipedia. Uh, and in Wikipedia, this, has, uh, this is a saber staff. So as it uh, relates to the law, I picture, it, I picture it like this. On one hand, we may feel like we nail it, right? But what, uh, what does that lead to? It leads to us feeling proud. We feel entitled. We feel uh, judgmental, right? So pride, we become pr- proud. We self-promote. We falsely anchor quickly into what we do and what we add to the equation. Uh, and then we feel entitled. Since we're doing well in our own eyes, we quickly become entitled. We think, I deserve this. I deserve God's love to some level because I'm doing good at this. And then, as the kids say, we act judgy. Uh, we, uh, you know, people need to be as good as we are, right? So, and look at me. I'm doing all of these things, and they need to do these things too. So that's the one side of the double-edged uh, lightsaber. What's the other? Well, we're not good at it, right? We feel, too, we feel bad. Uh, depression and despair. I, I'm terrible at this. God doesn't love me. I have no hope. We feel anxious. I can't live up to the weight of this. Uh, and that ultimately leads to shame. Uh, I feel terrible at, that I'm terrible at this. Um, I can't keep the law. I mess up. There's no hope for me. You know, that's right into the trap set by the enemy, set by Satan, who says, you know, even at the Garden of Eden, Eden you're on level with God. You can you know good and you can know good and evil. You can do these things. You don't need God. And when we feel like this, when we feel these, uh, these ways, we've got to call them out for what they are. They're lies, right? This is 
not the place God wants us to be, and it's not thinking in line with God's character. Peter, in today's passage, puts it this way. Uh, He says, why put on these new believers uh, anything more than what we've been able to bear in the past? Why put a yoke on these people? Why do we put a yoke on ourselves? He's basically saying, look, we couldn't do it. Our parents couldn't do it. Their parents couldn't do it. Their parents couldn't do it. Uh, why are we saying to the, this new group of believers, we've got to put this, uh, put this yoke on the neck? Um, and this lines up directly with what Jesus said himself uh, during his ministry, uh, spoken on in, in Matthew, but basically speaking to the Pharisees and the many ways they would put people under a, a heavy burden. Jesus says this, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus provides a different way a new way, and Peter is trying to tie us back to those words. I think this is deliberate. Uh, remember who this is coming from. Peter walked with Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus, right? He was likely present when Jesus said these words. So he's specifically tying this counsel back to, hey, why are we putting uh, a yoke that none of us could bear on these new believers? Why would we think that that's right? The only one, Jesus, who can bear the weight of the law of Moses did so for us at the cross. We have nothing more to add. His yoke is easy. His burden is light because he took the weight. He took that heaviness, uh, the impossibility from a human perspective. He took it at the cross. He said, follow me. I've got this for you, right? In Philippians, Paul uh, puts it like this. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we put our faith in Christ and his yoke, there is peace. Not to say we won't experience pain or trouble, because in this life we will. But our ultimate hope is instead moved away from ourselves and away from our idols and away from the things uh, that we uh, place on others and, and we place it firmly on Christ, the only one, who can give us this sustaining peace. And this leads us uh, to the rest of the passage here. Um, It's uh, Acts 13, uh, or verse 13 through 35, and we'll read that, and we'll keep going here. So let's read together. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from those ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. 
Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself, yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. All right, so let's uh, tackle this section here. So uh, when our family is out and about, uh, our daughter Ilya likes to DJ for us, so we drive around and she plays us all these songs. And uh, last week she was playing one from a hip-hop group called uh, Beautiful Eulogy. And actually I would, I'd highly recommend, there's an album they put out maybe a year or two ago called Worthy, really good. But somewhere in there someone says something to the effect of it's not about believing in God, we need to believe God. So did you catch that? It's not about believing in God, and we need to believe God. And the idea there is... Belief needs to move. You know, it says in the Bible and Scripture elsewhere that, you know, even the demons believe. So there's, there's the belief needs to move from what's in our heads, believing in God, to a trust in our hearts. I think that the, the belief actually is more uh, um, this trust idea than just a believing in idea. And that's the crux of the issue here today, right? So who do we trust? I find comfort in this passage from John. I hope you do too. Um, this is Jesus speaking. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and, in, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why should we trust Jesus in his salvation we're given to him and we're known by him, right? It's our inheritance. We just sang that. No, none can take away. It's such an awesome, awesome idea. And we're known by him and we're secure in him. When we put our faith in him, no one is able to take us out of the Father's hand. Nobody can steal us away, right? That's a huge comfort. Uh, who is like our God? Nobody. And more than that, he does the work for us, right? So take a look at, in Acts here, take a look at of the action that God is taking and not requiring from us. It says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So we respond to this action that God is taking on our behalf, right? And check out this prophecy uh, that they reference here. It's from the book of Amos when James is talking. It says, Check, look at all the action steps there. Notice what will happen. Uh, God says, I will return. I will rebuild. I will restore. And the Gentiles will now be included. 
which should be really great news to a whole room of us, uh, mostly Gentiles, I'm assuming, in this room, right? So this is really great news. We're included in this salvation idea. So the argument being laid out here is Jesus did the work on the cross. There's no longer a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. We are all saved the same way. How? Well, we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, would be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. There is no longer a distinction. And this is tough to hear for some of the Jews of that day, uh, which is why they're sneaking back in. And as Paul said in that earlier passage in Galatians, he's like, they're, they're sneaking back in to spy out our freedom and bring us back into slavery. They're going from a simple equation to a complicated equation. They're going from that trust in Jesus is salvation to trust plus works, plus the law of Moses, plus what you need to add to equal salvation. And it's not only a more complicated equation, it's a wrong equation, right? So they're going, to, they're going the wrong way. And the council here is saying, does this line up with what Jesus has told us? No. And they land here with, you know, we shouldn't bother these new believers with this because it's not right to bother these new believers with this, Right? There's no greater burden. So therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God with these things. We should not trouble them with the idea of circumcision. We should not trouble them with the idea of the law, the maybe 600 plus mosaic laws that they're trying to bring back in. We should not trouble them with things outside of the true saving work of Christ, right? So look at how Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. This is from uh, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, right, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's all of us, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the law is good in so much as it bears witness to the righteousness of God, but it does not do a saving work. I like how the uh, Gospel Transformation Bible puts it. It says the law informed God's followers about how to walk in integrity with Him, but it never provided the power to obey it. Instead, it only revealed the inability of God's people to live up to God's perfect righteousness. The law never provided the power to obey it. So you see, we're justified by grace as a gift. And a gift through who? We're justified by grace through Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans. This is a gift, not something that we earn. It's a gift, not something that we purchase. It's a gift, not something we can add to, or for our English majors, in which we can add, right? Because we're not supposed to end with the two. A gift, uh, something we can trust, right? We can trust in this. Uh, it's uh, super exciting, it's super encouraging to know that that inheritance cannot be taken away from us. So check, check it out. The council and actions land on what? They land on no greater burden. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. 
So you might be asking yourself, so why, why this list? I know I did when I uh, dove into this a little bit and I've heard it before in the past. Uh, first off, I want to point out in, in verse 29, note that it says, you will do well. It does not say you will be saved. Right? So it says that because they're keeping the right equation here. They're not hinging salvation on this list. And that's important because uh, they're not, this council is not bringing in a smaller list. They're, they're, n- they're not saying that. They're saying here are some things you'll do well if you stay away from them, and, and, and here's why, right? So sexual uh, immorality, they're saying abstain from things that are dangerous to you and to others. And why? Because it tells the wrong story. It tells a story of selfishness. It tells a story of brokenness. It says your momentary needs are paramount to anything else, the church, the gospel, everything. It's telling a broken story there when we, uh, when we elevate our, our sexual needs or other needs above where they, should rightfully be, where they rightfully should be. And this is not the story of Jesus and his church. We see it all throughout the scripture. It's not the right story. So that's why they're saying, you know, stay away from this, you'll do well. They also say, uh, stay away from these other things, basically saying, Gentile Christians, abstain uh, from these things in order... Uh, to help your Jewish sisters, your Jewish brothers, not trip over these things. Do this for the sake of love and unity. They're saying these things are going to trip up these, your Jewish sisters and brothers because it's been taught for years and years and years, centuries in the, in the synagogues, and it's going to trip them up. It's going to take some time. Do this for unity and for love. And I love that it says here, it's good to the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit is, there's unity. Where the Spirit is, there's love. By God's grace, we have great unity and uh, love in this church, uh, despite us being very different people, right? We, um, but it's the work of the Spirit that is making these things happen, and we should praise God for it. And did this group pray in Acts and focus on the Spirit and the leading to put many rules on the new believers? No, right? They did not. They said no greater burden uh, than to trust in Christ. And look what they did. Like Peter was saying earlier, they rejoiced. Right? They, would, they responded with, this is great. This is not a burden to us. This was not an extensive list. This was not a bummer. This was not perceived as difficult uh, to them. This was encouraging to them. This was unity-giving and life-giving and not a wedge for them to be concerned with at all. Right? And what's gloriously absent from this list here too? Where are the Ten Commandments, right? They're not there. Where's the call for new believers to add to the, anything to the equation, really? It's, it's not there. They said, none of this is salvific work. This is just this is stuff for you uh, to consider. Do good in these things, you'll do well. And there's nowhere to be seen. Your brothers and sisters, we can be in unity because of this. Uh, so it was not a, fi- it was not a uh, call to the Mosaic Law. It was a call to trust in Jesus and His saving work alone. Let God, let Jesus do the work. All right, so gospel application here. So how do we apply this today? First off, guard your hearts right against the law, uh, letting the law back in and thinking that we add to the equation somehow. This is easy to do. We do it often if we're honest with ourselves, right? 
we try to justify ourselves, we can easily get into that two-edged lightsaber thinking of, uh, I do this really well, uh, therefore others should, or I am terrible at this and I, I'm not worthy to bring things to the cross. That's, that's not at all the thing. So guard your heart against that. Uh, and as Martin Luther says, you know, if that's a default position, we can guard against that. Rather believe and uh, trust and rest in the saving work of Jesus. Trust that what Jesus says is trustworthy. Like all other ground is sinking sand, right? Trust that he knows you and you are secure in him. No one can snatch you from his hands. And what a powerful image and a peace-giving notion for those who believe in our hearts that we cannot save ourselves. You know, trust me, I realize this is easier said than done. Um, trust is built on relationship, right? And, but know this, Jesus wants a relationship with you. Uh, is, dig into the scripture that is a direct pipeline into the heart of God. And we should do this together as a community. And rely on his work as we sing here sometimes. He chases us down. He fights our battles. This is not, we, we just, uh, we, we need to trust, participate in that. Um, but he's doing the work. He has a secure, secure grip on his people as we see. He's the good shepherd of his sheep. As he said, Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us, Right? And if you are new to this and you want to believe today, today is a great day. Let the peace that only He can provide wash over you. Um, have faith in Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe Him when He says He is the life. Believe Him when He says He wants to know you. Live in that peace that only He provides that you can be secure in Him. And finally, rejoice. Right? Celebrate in what Jesus has done. We should rejoice in it. We should feel that there is no greater burden on us than to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation and then we can rest in Him. Amen? Do you feel that? Or do you feel a burden? Do you feel like you need to add something in? Or do you feel shame? That's not at the heart of God. Let that go. Come to Jesus. Come to His feet. Um, we're going to feel some of these things. We're not perfect uh, in this life. But when we do feel these things... Um, Rest in Jesus. Go to Jesus. Rest in His power. Rest in His saving grace. Trust the victory has been won. When you trust something is won, you stop trying to achieve it. Right? So think of the end of the Super Bowl. Um, you know, confetti's flying. Everybody's celebrating, right? What, what we don't see is the third-string quarterback out at midfield, like, you know, dropping back and throwing bombs to someone because I got to add something to this. He didn't play at all in the game. He uh, added nothing to that victory. But we don't see him out there trying to achieve that. And we don't see him like run over and grab the mic from Tom Brady. Uh, well, sorry. Uh, even in a even in a fake Super Bowl, Tom Brady wins. So, uh, so he doesn't grab that. He doesn't grab that mic and say like, "Look what I did." You know, that would be ridiculous. A third-string quarterback. You're like, "Yeah, you stood there with a clipboard. You were great, man." Um, but. You know, we don't see that. And why? Because he believes he's on the right team, right? He can be assured of what has been done for him. He trusts that it counts. It's not going to be able to take it away from him. Uh, and it was done on his behalf. Nobody can take that away. So even much, 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 much more. As believers, we can cling to Jesus and the victory he has won. We can rest assured in the fact that he knows us and he secures us. In Revelation, it says there's two books, one with all of the works listed 
And one with what? Just names, right? It's such a powerful image. It's so awesome. We can trust that our names will be in the book of life and then our works, good and bad, good and bad, both equally irrelevant at that point, are not listed. It's awesome. Uh, It's only that we believe that we trust in the saving blood of Jesus and the only one who can say, she's with me, he's with me, and we can rest in that. Put your whole faith into his saving work knowing there is nothing you can add and there is nothing uh, you can do. I'm going to pray here in just a second, invite the band back up. Before I do, one final encouragement. Believe it when Jesus says on this cross, it is finished. It is finished. The work here is done. Rest, my children, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... uh, we praise You that You have done this work for us, that You have won this victory for us. We praise You that we can rest in that, that that's what You want from us, that there's no greater burden on us but to trust You. And with that trust comes a peace that passes all understanding. With that trust comes uh, a genuine uh, response in our hearts to want to do things uh, for others to show love and unity. Uh, Give us that genuine response. It's only in the work that You do. We thank You that salvation is a work that that You do as well. That that there's nothing that we can get out from under this idea that we can add to it. Uh, We praise You for that. What a beautiful gift that is uh, to us. So we thank You, praise You, uh, and glorify Your name here today. In Jesus' name, Amen.